Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. Whether you're thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career, we want to help you live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my HR leadership expertise, and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, pointers, career stories, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to Reinventing Your Career. Our conversation today is about how we can leverage an entrepreneurial mindset, stand out, and pivot as needed to reinvent ourselves to achieve our greatest success. Our featured guest is Dory Clark, named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50, recognized as the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards. Dory is a consultant for clients including Google, Microsoft, and the World Bank. Dory is the author of Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, which was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine. A former presidential campaign spokeswoman, Dory has been described by the New York Times as an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Welcome, Dory. We're so honored to have you with us today. Hi, Mary. I'm so glad to chat with you. Well, I would say it's a really great thing to be an expert at self-reinvention. Don't we all need that today? The world's changing so much. It's one great thing to survive, but we need that self-reinvention to reach our goals. Will you tell us a little bit how you came to be an expert here? What did you experience and what did you learn? Thank you, Mary. Well, like many reinventors, I was dragged kicking and screaming into it. (laughs) (laughs) I think oftentimes we have this picture-perfect lionized vision of, oh, I'm going to transform my life. And sometimes it works out that way. Sometimes it's a very deliberate and methodical and beautiful path. But for a lot of people, myself included, reinvention is a little more traumatic, or at least starts out in a more traumatic way. And that's actually why I wrote my book, Reinventing You, was I realized in retrospect with my own reinvention, I didn't really do it the optimal way. I (laughs) I think that I probably wasted a lot of time and energy and was spinning my wheels, and I wanted to create something that enabled people to do it better and more efficiently. But the short version of it is I started my professional career as a newspaper journalist, and I ended up getting laid off from my job in the early phases of the newspaper industry contraction. And in fact, rather traumatically, my day that I got laid off was Monday, September 10th, 2001. And so I woke up the next morning raring to go with my job search. And I realized, oh, I'm not going to go job hunting today. (laughs) But the problem and what really lit a fire under me was I worked for this cheapskate newspaper that gave me four days of severance pay, and I had to figure something out. So it was reinvention with your back against a wall, which on the plus side did engender some creativity, but it made me keenly interested in the topic. I'm guessing you didn't have that six months to a year cushion savings that (laughs) we talked about on our last podcast, personal finance, and we find that's a big deal as well, is preparing yourself for all kinds of scenarios. That's exactly right. I've certainly become a big fan 
of that. And I definitely have a lot of savings in the bank now because I've become really obsessive as a result because I've seen how precarious even a quote unquote safe job can be. But at the time, you are exactly correct. I was 21 or 22 years old and I was just out of graduate school and I absolutely did not have six months of savings in the bank. And I count myself lucky, but what would have happened if I had not managed to find something for myself was that I would probably have to go home to live in my parents' house (laughs) in a small town in North Carolina, which was really, really what I did not want to do. And so I knew that I needed to become very entrepreneurial in my thinking. So you experienced a layoff early and one that clearly caught you off guard, but you've had other things on your path, let's say, on your professional path that have caused you to pivot. I mean, I call it pivoting, but this, I need to change. I need to reinvent something here and move differently in order to succeed. You've had a number of those, would you say, throughout your journey to date? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Basically in my 20s, literally nothing worked out. (laughs) (laughs) But it did. It did. And then it didn't. I mean, you were moving towards things, but things change. Yeah. I think the important perspective that I've gained with all of this, which I think sometimes can be challenging in the moment, but is a useful frame to develop, is that all of these things in kind of a comprehensive portfolio way are adding to your skills. They're adding to your experiences. It's more arrows in your quiver. But in the moment, as humans, we have a tendency to say, oh, well, now this, the other ones didn't work out, but this is going to work out. And then when it doesn't, it can be very disheartening. But even before the journalism layoff, my original hypothesis was that I was going to be an academic and I had gotten a master's degree and I wanted to go back to get my doctorate. And I ended up getting turned down by all of the doctoral programs that I applied to. I had certainly planned for the eventuality that I wasn't going to get into all of them, but I in no way, shape, or form thought that I was not going to get into any. And so journalism was my plan B. So that was the plan B that didn't work out. After that happened, I went to work on some political campaigns, and they were cool campaigns. They were exciting campaigns. You could even say they were prestigious campaigns. One was a presidential race, another was a gubernatorial race, working with some very high-profile candidates, but they both ended up losing. And so whatever plans I had about, oh, maybe I can go into the administration or something like that also needed to be reinvented. So there is a certain amount of agility that is absolutely required. So let's talk about this. This idea of reinvention, because in some ways, did you completely change and reinvent the path that you were on? Or did you continue to just move towards, I mean, some other aspect of yourself, some other creativity or brilliance or skill that you were bringing out? Like your point about a portfolio of experiences, is this sort of the way it is that we continue to need to not get too stuck on this is my path and this is what I'm going to do in my career? Because a lot of things could show up and a lot of our brilliance is untapped. I think for me, one of the stories that I find most relevant or emblematic from my book, Reinventing You, is one that I tell about a woman that I know named Lisa. And I think probably a lot of professionals can relate to it because Lisa was the person that I say in air quotes, did everything right. (laughs) Lisa got into Yale Law School 
got her JD. She then decides she wants to be a professor of law. So she goes on, she gets a doctorate in the study of law, again from Yale. Rocking it. She gets a Fulbright. She has all the credentials that one would need in order to have a very successful, in theory, career as a professor of law. And the only problem, the only fly in the ointment, is that shortly before her graduation, she has this terrible epiphany, which is that, oh my God, I don't want to be a professor of law. (laughs) And a lot of people would look at that and say, geez, Lisa, too bad you wasted 10 years of your life doing this. If you looked at her resume, that would literally be the only thing she's qualified for. You could teach or you could be a lawyer, take your pick. But she really didn't want to do either. But what she did and what I think all of us in many ways these days are called to do is she didn't let herself be limited by the line items or by the descriptors on her resume. What she said instead is, you know what, over the past 10 years, yes, I got these degrees or these credentials, but there's got to be something else that I learned. There's got to be some other skill that I developed. And so what she realized was that in the course of studying to be a lawyer, she had developed really excellent public speaking and persuasion skills. And in the course of studying for her doctorate, she had picked up three different languages. So she was very fluently multilingual. And as a result, she took those as the building blocks and she ended up creating her own career, her own dream career, working in the wine industry which is what she was most interested in. And she invented this career for herself, working as a liaison with foreign vintners to help them get their product to market in the U.S. No one would have thought of that as a career for her, but she made it happen because she looked at her baseline skills. Totally. And I didn't mention it. You studied divinity as an undergrad. I'm not even sure how you identified like that's what you wanted, but Even in the Lisa story, how do we know early on what we want to study, who we want to be, and then we get into our career? And in the Lisa story, some people find that out 25 years into a career that, wait, I didn't really, this isn't me or not my purpose or what I wanted. So this reinvention and this agility is such an important thing to have from the get-go. Absolutely. And of course, it's true. I mean, finding out about ourselves and our interests is an iterative process. And also things change. I mean, you could legitimately be interested in something at 25 that by the time you're 45, you're like, you know what, this is kind of played out. (laughs) That's fine. That's totally fine. I think that there are two factors that inhibit people when it comes to reinvention. And one big factor is, to go back to where we started the conversation, it's finances that many people find themselves locked into debt structures. Maybe they've been living high on the hog and they say, well, I can't afford to make a change. And the truth is they may be right because it takes a while. It doesn't take forever, but it sometimes takes a while for you to be able to replicate your exact salary. If you've risen pretty high in an organization and you want to make a change, then It's not a simple thing if you're making $350,000 a year, let's say, to just jump into some other completely different thing and be at that level. I mean, if it were easy, everyone would do it. 
So you may need to take a temporary step back in order to leap forward and to progress on that new path. So I think that is one thing that we have to reckon with, that it is always important as best we humanly can to make sure we are not overextending ourselves financially so that we increase our optionality. But this leads into the second piece, which is where the gleam of hope comes. And that is that many people, I think, have, if I can be so bold, many people have the reinvention narrative wrong in that the way that the story is told culturally is often oh, I just decided what I wanted to do and I leapt. And I think that leaping in any form is usually a terrible idea. I am not a fan of leaping because leaping is a very precarious thing to do. What I think, especially for mid-career people, senior people, you have responsibilities, you have things at stake. Leaping's never good. What I like is sidling. What I like is shimmying and sticking a toe in the water. And so this ties into what I call the runway issue, which is that we often expect that reinvention is going to be an overnight thing. Oh, I quit my job and I just started doing XYZ. What I think is a better framework is to say, okay, the more I have at stake, the more runway I need. And I'll tell you a quick story from Reinventing You that I feel like exemplifies this. There's a woman that I profile named Patricia, and Patricia was a hairdresser in San Francisco, and she had this lease on a salon, and she would cut the hair of a lot of executives in the downtown. And she realized in the course of getting to know them that she was really interested in their work, and she also loved public speaking. And she first started public speaking in the hair care industry, as you might imagine. She would do product demos and shows at hairdressing conventions. And she was so smart about her job. She was so impeccable about sales and customer service and things like that, that she really impressed her clientele. And when they found out that she did public speaking, they said, oh, hey, well, would you speak to our team? And She's like, okay. So she came in and she would give these talks. And at first, of course, she's not making very much money from it, but she realized that she loved it. And so over a 10-year period, it was very deliberate. It was the 10-year lease of her salon. She said, I am going to build up my speaking business on the side so that I, at 10 years, I can walk away. I can just walk away and shut down the salon. And she did. And at the end of 10 years, no interruption. She had more than replaced her salon salary with her salary as a professional speaker. You could never do that on day one. But by the end of year 10, it was so seamless, there was no problem. And I think that the real issue is you can reinvent yourself into almost anything as long as you have enough time and patience and you are working the process. The factors of, obviously, the financial considerations, the runway is so key. I'm curious if in your background or in your experience, or from what you've seen as well and what you've written about, what might else be there in terms of one's mindset in their character or their capability? I'm thinking of a growth mindset or their tenacity or resilience. Is there anything else that sort of really differentiates people who are able to continuously adapt and evolve and reinvent throughout their careers? There are a number of different things that are at play. I mean, one is the question of how tightly we're holding our identity. And 
the extent to which we are deriving our identity from what we do professionally. Now, I think, especially in American business culture, this is a pretty common thing. In other cultures, the first question is not, what do you do? It's, where are you from or whatever. But in our culture, it's, what do you do? So it is natural. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I don't think so. I mean, if you have a job that you love and you feel very self-actualized in, that is the best thing in the world to talk about. So I don't think there's an issue with it per se, but I think that we sometimes get so wrapped up in the particulars of it that we can't necessarily see the forest for the trees. And so I think about this woman named Roxy, who I wrote about in Reinventing You, and she had this experience where she was at a dinner party and somebody asked her, so what do you do? And she said, well, I'm a teacher. And they said, oh, well, what do you teach? And then she said, oh, well, I'm not teaching right now. And she goes on and she explains. And so later her husband comes up to her and says, why did you say you're a teacher? And she's like, well, but I am. And he's like, Roxy, for the past three years, you've run a nonprofit. Like, you're not a teacher anymore. But it was an education nonprofit. And she still thought of herself as a teacher. But to the outside world, actually, that's not really what she's doing. And I think it's interesting. I mean, in her mind, teaching was the definition. But really, if you zoom out, I mean, she cared about students. She cared about education. She was manifesting it in a different way. And that conversation made her realize like, oh, wait, maybe I need to update my self-identity in some ways. And I think for all of us, we need to maybe take a step back and understand there may be a substratum that enables me to have continuity in my identity, but I don't literally need to be doing this job. or I don't literally need to be expressing myself in this particular way. That's a big deal for corporate execs who have spent a fair number of years or a long number of years in a path, and then either they're retiring, early retiring, or just wanting to make a change. And it's a, that identity is a really big deal. And Absolutely. you get a lot of reinforcement, to your point. You're getting a lot of family or social reinforcement from that. And so you had said, I believe it was more in standout, wasn't it, that you really highlighted how critical this is, and you just mentioned it as well. But we're shaping it. We're shaping our personal brand through our whole career. I had seen recent research, over 85% of hiring managers say that a candidate's personal brand does influence their hiring decisions because they've checked you out. They've seen you're online or they've spoken informally or formally to people who know you. So it precedes <laughs> often even meeting someone. And it does matter. What are some thoughts you could share with us on how do we know our personal brand, shape it to what best serves us in our life and career, and stay very proactive in that regard? I think that's right on, Mary. And I'll just add on one more layer in addition to answering your question. It's not even just at the start of the hiring process. I mean, research by the Center for Talent Innovation shows that one of the key factors in whether or not someone actually lands a sponsor, which of course is crucial to advancing in your career once you are in a position, is your personal brand. And it makes sense because how does a sponsor discover you anyway? Well, they discover you because there's a buzz about you in the company. And so they're like, oh, I keep hearing about this Mary person. Who's Mary? And then they start to, to look at you. And then 
they realize, of course, over time that it's in their self-interest to take you on because if Mary is on the rise and they're seen as Mary's mentor or Mary's sponsor, then that redounds to their benefit as well. It's about getting in the door and it's also about advancing once you are in that door. So both things are true. When it comes to understanding your personal brand, I mean, there's certainly some techniques that one could use. Many executives, of course, especially if you are a leader already or if you're on a leadership path with hypo programs or something like that, you will often get 360s, which are really helpful and really valuable. But if you don't have that for some reason, let's say you are an entrepreneur or you're in a company that just doesn't offer that, I actually, in my book, Reinventing You, came up with a super quick, like I call it like a life hack 360. (laughs) And basically the way that it works, I call it the three question exercise. And what you do is you reach out to a certain number of people. I would say at least half a dozen is usually a good number, but it could be more if you want. And you can send them a text message. You can ask them in person. You could even do it on your Facebook page, whatever is fine. But you ask a super simple question, which is, if you had to describe me in only three words, what would they be? Now, this exercise, I think, is quite helpful, but not necessarily for the reasons you might think. So some people might say, ah, but I'm not going to find out anything revelatory. I know who I am. Well, yes, that's probably true in the sense that if you are a really outgoing person, I doubt it that someone's going to be like, oh, actually, Mary, you're super quiet. And it's like, no, like you get it that you're an extrovert or whatever it is. You have the broad sense. But the piece that none of us know, that we cannot know, is which out of our many traits are the things that stand out most in other people's minds. The problem with us and our self-knowledge is that we know too many things about ourselves. What we need to know is what other people think is most unique or most distinctive. And by the time half a dozen people get back to you, you are very quickly going to see a pattern. Oh, everyone seems to be talking about how creative I am. Or gee, everyone seems to be talking about how I really make everybody feel welcome and I'm an inclusive leader, whatever it is. And this is an exercise that takes like two minutes. It's not a perfect thing. Some people will say, well, but they're only going to tell me positive things. Well, yes, of course. That's the point. This is an exercise that is about identifying your strengths that you can lead into. This is not about identifying and sussing out your weaknesses. We can do that in a different way. But let me tell you how. Yet another back of the envelope way that we can identify our weaknesses is not always, but almost always our weaknesses literally are just the mirror image of our strengths. And so we have to ask ourselves, do I do too much of this thing? And you might not, but it's an interesting question to ask. I mean, because if you keep hearing from everybody, oh, Mary, you're so strategic. You're so visionary. Which I do. (laughs) I, I mean, like every day, yes. That obviously is a great thing to be. But the question that is worth interrogating is, okay, if I am so strategic and I have over-indexing on that, is it possible that I might be neglectful of the details? Is it possible yes. that I might be? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and so we can think about that as a way of maybe shoring up some of the weaknesses. Your point too, though, is, I mean, if you're talking about brand and your personal brand, that those strength or those unique attributes of you, you want to keep capitalizing on and really be in touch with and help shape. Yes. So when people do that, 
are they surprised when they see those three generally, or they're just not paying enough attention to those big, unique areas? I'll give you one example. I was leading a session for a group of folks a while ago, and this was a group that knew each other pretty well. And they decided, they got really excited about the idea, and they said, oh, oh, we want to do it right now. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's do it right now. So they picked a guy, and they sent him out of the room, and they all decided they would write down their three words about this guy. And then he came back in the room, and everybody read their three words. Now, this works better in some contexts than others to do it literally this way, but they were all pretty close, and so it was a safe environment. And they read their words. And so there's 10 people in the room, seven of them. One of the three words, one of the first things they said about this particular guy was that he was creative. Now, that was pretty interesting because I can imagine that if we had said to him, yes or no, are you creative? He would have been like, well, yeah, sure, sure. I'm a creative person. I can also almost guarantee you that he would not have necessarily understood in advance that 70% of the people in his inner circle thought this was his most defining trait. And so it's that level of self-knowledge, of just understanding, well, what's most special? In marketing and branding, we talk all the time about what's the USP? What's the unique selling proposition? Well, if we want to brand ourselves effectively, then we need to understand our own USP. We need to understand, I mean, people sometimes are like, "Ah, but I don't want to market myself like a detergent. Well, look, people think something about you. What is it that when they think of you, that they think is special? If we can understand that, that is a real strategic advantage because it gives us the clues, it gives us the breadcrumbs that we can follow so that we are able to understand, oh, gosh, maybe I am actually doing this in a different way. Maybe I am actually a little bit better at this than other people are? And how can I leverage that? So you know your USP. How do you continue to leverage it? Do you sort of expand who knows about it and enhance it a bit? And then what if you did have an area that you did over-rotate? How might you shape that? I mean, there's working on it, of course, but by the time you've fixed it, people's memories are still that it's a problem. How might you minimize some of those negative attributes in the brand? Well, I think that you're pointing to a key issue, which is that changes that feel very meaningful to us, like, oh, wow, I have totally changed my behavior. Other people, it seems a lot more subtle to them. And it does take a long time to overcome it. If you were the person who, and I'm sure it's none of your listeners, but if metaphorically, you're the person that's always like rolling out of bed and you can't get to work on time and you're always 20 minutes late, suddenly you start coming to work on time people actually are not really going to notice for a while. You think, oh gosh, three days later, they're going to be like, wow, Mary's a changed woman. Well, no, it's maybe like three months later, they're going to say Mary is a changed woman. So there is a lag time involved in this. And so one of the things that I think is most important is we actually have to be telegraphing our intentions and telegraphing our strategies if we have determined that we really want to make a strategic shift. And so Let's pretend you are the leader that everybody's like, oh, you're so visionary, you're so strategic, but you have come to the conclusion that people think that you're not so fantastic on tactics or implementation. So instead of just proceeding on your normal course, which has gotten you the results that you've had so far, you maybe want to make a rule for yourself where you say, okay, 
in every single meeting from now on, I am going to make sure that I bring up implementation and that I am leading the charge on that. And so at a certain point, it's like, whatever, make your Apple Watch buzz or something so that you're reminded to do it. But at a certain point, you want to say, okay, great. So it sounds like we've really established the overarching principles here. But now, now people, let's get down to brass tacks because it never happens without implementation. I know implementation is crucial here. So let's talk about that. So who's doing this? Okay, so I'm doing that. Who's doing this other thing? And all of a sudden, you're making a big deal out of it. And you keep doing that. And people notice faster when you do. That's something if we're sort of just shifting the balance a little bit. If something has been actually a problem, like let's say you're, again, not your listeners, but let's say you're somebody that has been a kind of moody leader or somebody that yells at their staff or something like that, and it's caused some friction. That's the kind of thing that you probably want to call out explicitly and say at a certain point, and it needs to be you raising it, your next all hands or whatever. You can say, I've really been reflecting on it, and I realize that in the past, my leadership style, while I'm proud to be results-oriented, I may have sometimes driven a little too hard, and I realize that raising my voice is not the best way to do things. And so I want to let you know, it is my commitment to not do that again. Now, am I going to fall short of that commitment? I'm sure I will, but I am going to make my very best effort not to. And I invite you actively that if you see me in the moment doing that, I would like you to stop me and to tell me that, to remind me of that, because I've decided that I am going to take a new path moving forward. And that is a very brave and sort of vulnerable thing to do, but people are going to pay attention to that. That's for damn sure. They are going to listen. I've seen that done brilliantly. I've done that brilliantly. It's hard. And I think most people don't. It's one, you have to, to your point, see it, be open, aware, and then make that invitation, which is very vulnerable to say, yeah, call me out on it. Let's shape this together or whatever the words you used. It's a big deal. It's one of those things that is very hard for people to do. But what they often fail to realize, they see the vulnerable part, but what they don't necessarily understand is that that vulnerability only comes from strength. Only an incredibly strong person has the baseline confidence to be willing to do it. And people will respect you all the more for having said that and for having done that. That is the mark of a leader, is being willing to sort of go through that gauntlet. Given, gosh, we're in such competitive times, and they will always be, but how does one stand out in your mind? How do you ensure others do understand those unique strengths, that leadership ability, and allow you to really stand out in a competitive environment? As you can imagine, Mary, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and my book Stand Out is very much about this topic. What I have come to understand in the past decade of researching this is that fundamentally, there are three components to standing out in your company or in your field. And they are, I'll explain all of these, but they are content creation, social proof, and your network. They're all essential and they all kind of fit together like a flywheel amplifying each other. Content creation is basically the question of how do you share your ideas publicly? And this could be writing, it could be speaking, it could even just be something as simple as speaking up in meetings. But the truth is, unless you are sharing your ideas so that 
other people can see what they are and discover them inside or outside of your company, people aren't going to know. And literally the only people who think you're great are going to be the people who work elbow to elbow with you, which is essentially a limited number. If you want to be known for your ideas, you have to share your ideas. That's number one. Number two, social proof, is what are your credentials? What is it about you that would cause someone who didn't know you to take you seriously? And there's a lot of things that this could be. Inside a company, it could be, well, who is your mentor? Who's your sponsor? What projects have you worked on? Or what's your pedigree? Did you work for a different high-level company before coming in? Did you come from a specific MBA program? It could be skill sets you have. Oh, well, you know, she's an expert in data analytics or whatever. But what is it that if somebody was going to sum you up very quickly, like, oh, you really need to take that meeting with Mary. She's blah, 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 blah. What is it they're going to say that would make someone want to take that meeting? And then the last, of course, is your network. Because I do executive coaching and I work with a lot of people that are very smart, really good people. Some of them have ascended to very, very high levels. But Some of them have this ideology about kind of being a lone wolf and, oh, I made it on my own and I got recognized for my skills and that's sensational, but you eventually run out of steam with that because there comes a certain point where you need to have friends, where you need to have people that are amplifying you when you're not in the room. You need to have people who have your back. You need to have people that are recommending you for the projects or for the assignments or the fellowships or whatever. And you need to have a sort of fan base of people in that way. And also you need people who are feeding you good information. Well, what should you ask when it comes to your next raise request? Or is it better to take the Singapore job or to take the Berlin job? I mean, how would you know unless there was somebody on the inside that was able to give you a little bit of help? Those three. I mean, I think of so many people in my professional life who've done all three of them extremely well, and you're spot on. They're so successful in what they do, either in an entrepreneurial path or in a traditional corporate path. We're clearly accelerating, certainly in the context of 2020, to much more of an entrepreneurial, self-reliant work from wherever it works for you kind of world. Are you finding that the people who are either moving into more of that true entrepreneurial space, there's something about them or thoughts about entrepreneurial mindset and benefiting someone, even if they're not in their own business? I'm certainly a fan of developing an entrepreneurial mindset, which is something that I talk about a lot in my newest book, Entrepreneurial You. I think that it is honestly not a bad idea for every professional, even those that work inside companies that have a job they love, a job that they wouldn't even want to give up, to develop some kind of side project. Because I have seen firsthand that the thing that seems safe is safe until it isn't. And so it is useful to have something to fall back on. I mean, in Entrepreneurial You, I tell the story about a guy named Pat Flynn that worked at an architecture firm. And this was around 2008. And he was studying for his LEED certification, which some folks may know it's a green building certification. And it's a very involved, kind of complicated test. And so in order to pass the test, he was studying very hard. And he created a blog for himself where he was basically posting his study notes. 
And that became a really popular resource. And a lot of people started going to his website. The Google search rankings were getting pretty good on it because a lot of people found his notes helpful. And at a certain point, he decided, oh, maybe I'll make this into an ebook because people seem to be going to the site. And it's kind of a hassle, let's be honest, to keep clicking. Oh, click, click, click. Okay, all his blog entries. So he said, maybe I'll just turn it into a PDF ebook and sell it. And he decides to do this just on a lark. And it turns out that there is so much demand for his study notes and his ebook. He earns his first month, he earns $7,900 from his ebook, which turns out to be really important because a month after that, he got laid off from his architecture job in the midst of the 2008 financial crisis. And he would have been sunk otherwise. But instead, he's like, you know what? I'm going to keep riding this train. And today, he has a really successful business as a blogger and as a podcaster as a result of that. And I think for all of us, there are possibilities in terms of side gigs that we can cultivate. But even more than that, having an entrepreneurial mindset really is crucial. Just And when I say entrepreneurial mindset, basically what I mean is you are not owed anything. You got to scrap for things. And to the extent that people feel like, well, I deserve blah, blah, because I've been here X number of years, or but I trained for blah, 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 and I shouldn't have to blah, blah, blah. Well, we're not guaranteed anything. And we need to understand that we have to be creative and we have to assume that we will not be handed things. And so the stories that I tell in Entrepreneurial U are really, they're almost these creative challenges. It's about fundamentally entrepreneurial thinking is about how to operate under constraints. It's what do you do if you don't have any money? And for entrepreneurs, this is often literally the case. You have no money, but you have an idea. If you're in a corporation, there's probably money sloshing around somewhere, but the truth is you might not have it. And so if you want to launch a new project, how do you create a sort of duct tape pilot? so that you can prove its efficacy, so that you can get access to that money. That's a valuable thing. Or maybe the constraint is you have no time. How do you give yourself a deadline, sometimes even an artificial deadline? This is the premise of hackathons. What can I gin up in 24 hours? What can I gin up in a month? If you do that, it causes you to think about it differently than if you had unlimited budget in three years. And I think this is really an important question that we can ask ourselves. A couple of personal ones from your experience. You mentioned mentors and sponsors earlier. Throughout your career, have you benefited from that? If you look back, was that something you took good advantage of? Or do you look back and think, wow, I could have had or wish I had more mentorship and sponsorship? Mostly, I have not had a lot of mentorship and sponsorship is the truth, which is actually part of why a concept that I write about in Reinventing You, which I'm quite passionate about, is the idea of having a mentor board of directors. And instead of this kind of looking for your unicorn of who is the older, magical, powerful person that will take me under their wing. I mean, if you can have that, great. But most of us don't, honestly. And so instead, if we can think about creating our own, and this is not about literally convening people, although I suppose in theory you could, but it's really in your head. Who are the people you're learning from who may be senior to you, but they may be peers. Most of my mentors have been peers. They may even be junior people to you. Instead of saying, how do I learn everything from one person, how can I create a team of people that I am learning from so that I am able to get helpful information that I need so that I can get better and recognize that you can learn pieces from almost anyone? What's a great 
piece of career advice or something that's really served you over the years that you might share? Well, I think that one of them, which I think we're all embracing now, is the power of not having an office. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I've been anti-office for a long time. And of course, it requires a certain degree of discipline to do it. But I think that the more sort of flexibility we can build in for ourselves, the better in the sense that when you are not surrounded by colleagues, I think there's a place for that for sure. But even if you do literally work in an office, I think that having a different space that you go to or just somehow being able to extract yourself from the fray so that you have the ability to do deep work is really meaningful. Because I think that what I'm trying to get at is that there is a lot of hurly-burly in contemporary office life, whether it's answering emails or having meetings or this or this or this. And the thing that ultimately will separate you is your ability to make meaningful progress on meaningful projects. And you need to carve out the time and the space to be able to do that. Dory, thank you so much. You know what? I didn't mention earlier, but you've clearly through your past so far, and I know you're far from being done, had such a cool portfolio of experiences, stayed curious and continually learned so that you can bring your gifts to the world. And we really appreciate that you've been sharing those gifts with us as well today. So thank you so much. Mary, thank you so much. It's been a joy talking with you. And I'll just mention briefly that for folks who are interested in diving further into reinvention, I actually have a free self-assessment that might be helpful. It's available at doryclark.com slash reinvent, and it helps walk you through the process of thinking through your own reinvention process. For more resources on this topic, visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at moderncareerpod. We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Music